Well, we've come now to the end of the teacher's 12-chapter cruise of a cosmically uh, futile existence. For the past two months, we've walked through life and death in the shoes of the humanist, the secularist, the person who begins their thinking with man and the observable world, not the triune God who has revealed himself in Scripture. In other words, we've considered life from the perspective of one who knows the God whose image they bear only from a distance. And the teacher has warned us again and again that a life built on that shifting epistemological sand begets only vanity, futility, and meaninglessness. A life lived for self. A life lived for the pleasures that this world affords. To strive to make our mark on history. To live for posterity or for uh, philanthropic projects that will bear our name in the future. It's all useless. Ultimately, death swamps over everything and death that inevitable eternal reality that just punishment of god for our transgression against him death makes every life lived outside of the fear of god purposeless only god defying fools think otherwise friends this piece of plastic fruit represents everything in the world lived apart from God that this world has to offer, right? This plastic fruit is money, it's power, it's sex, it's drugs, it's fame, it's beauty, adventure, family, happiness, health, career success, reputation, a parcel of Rhodes Scholar children. Well, the teacher has sampled all the fake plastic fruit of the world and he's seen that it's a sham. It's a sham. Sure, the fruit looked good on the outside, But he's learned from experience and with the benefits of unrivaled genius, vast wealth and kingly power that apart from God, everything in life is ultimately rotten to its core. Can you imagine going into a casino with signs posted everywhere reading, warning, the house always wins. The dice are loaded. The roulette wheel is rigged. The deck is stacked. The dealers cheat. There's just signs all over the casino saying that. Would you want to gamble in such an establishment? Uh, Would you be so stupid as to bet $1 on a rigged game that you know is rigged? Sadly, many are prepared to make that gamble with their eternal soul. And Christians, too. Beloved, God has deliberately... Hear this. This is very important. God has deliberately created the things of this world with an inherent incapacity to satisfy. That we might be most satisfied in him. God has deliberately created the things of this world with an inherent incapacity to satisfy. That we might be most satisfied in him. And he's revealed this truth to us. He's warned us about all the fake plastic fruit in his word. And ultimately in his crucified son. That means we don't have to make the fatal error of indulging in the futile things of this world, looking for happiness. Uh, The teacher has done all of that on our behalf, and he's disclosed his findings to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're without excuse, but we so often live inconsistently, don't we? 
we keep going back to that crooked casino and we, we just keep hoping for the jackpot. And so we come now to the end, the conclusion of the matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 to 12, 14. And the teacher does something in his conclusion that's quite interesting. He, the topics he covers, even his concluding arguments, uh, there's, there's nothing new here. Um, New City, we've covered this territory before multiple times, which is actually why I felt free to skip over a few of, the, of those middle chapters. But now, what's changed, what's now changed is the audience the teacher is speaking to, it's very, very particular. Koheleth is no longer writing to all people generally. In his conclusion, the teacher turns to young people. And he warns the young person not to waste their life. Look at chapter 11, verse 9. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The teacher, God's inspired agent, he warns the young person. The young person who hopes to be biblically mature. That's a good goal, right? We want to be biblically mature. The young person who knows one day they're going to die and will face the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? He says, Live gratefully, live joyfully with the good gifts that you've received from God, young person. In other words, enjoy your youth. It's fun to be young, but it won't last forever. There will be judgment for how you conduct yourself in your youth. Therefore, young man, young woman, live for your creator before death overtakes you. Don't waste your life. Live for your creator now. Be wise and prepare for the judgment of God. If you look in your bulletin to point number one, young person, live gratefully and joyfully with the good gifts that you have received from God. Christian, what sort of life is actually not only the most obedient to God, but also the most fulfilling? Or is it even possible for those two things to go together? I mean, does it sound like a contradiction in terms? Um, Fulfillment and holy obedience. Are they mutually exclusive? Let me give you two options, right, for a life lived. And I want you to decide which life you'd prefer. All right? Life option number one. You live out your life as a well-respected Highly honored, healthy, beautiful, non-Christian artist, inventor, politician, scientist, rock and roller, like whatever turns your crank. But whatever it is that you do, you're at the very top of the heap. And your family is the picture of domestic bliss. So from an under the sun perspective, you've got it all. And in this Christless state, you live for 90 years, 95 years, let's say, all right? But on your deathbed, God, in his great grace, 
grants you genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, at the 11th hour, you're saved. You are united to Jesus. You're filled with the Spirit and rescued from the eternal consequences of your sin. Which means, and I know this reference is dated now, but I'm a Generation X, but uh, your life is a lot like the line in that Johnny Cash song, The Wanderer from U2's Europa album. I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. That's life option number one. Life option number two, you repent of your sin, you believe on Jesus Christ, you're baptized, you join a local church at a relatively young age. And all through the days of your youth, by God's enabling grace, you live a vibrant Christian witness. You're a faithful, consistent, bloom where you're planted type disciple of Jesus Christ. But your life is not the sort of life that biographies are written about. The years go by. You get a rather mundane sort of job. You start a family. But you're never too well off financially. You're plagued by bad health. And you die of a massive coronary at the age of 62. But... You die in the Lord. Which life is better? Which is the more appealing option? Well, those are two different questions, really. Uh, We may say option number two is better, biblically speaking. uh, But isn't life option number one, the Johnny Cash option? Isn't it temptingly preferable? Having it all, both in this life and in the next. I went out there in search of experience, to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. Brothers and sisters, that sort of thinking is wickedly perverse. Do you know why? I hope I don't have to tell you this, but I I pray you already know. Because being a Christian is so much more than merely being saved from hell and going to heaven when you die. Do you really want to enjoy the sublime riches of Jesus Christ only in the afterlife? What did we just sing? I once was lost in darkest night. Yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that had promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. We just sang that. How could we even think of trading away the privilege of a lifetime of faithful obedience to God for material blessing, fame, legacy? It's wickedly perverse. 
That's where the message of Ecclesiastes must, by God's Spirit, break through our sin-saturated, finite perspective. It's as C.S. Lewis wrote famously, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased, and we're pleased by the wrong things. We're pleased by the vanity of life over against the joy, the joy of walking with God in faithful, consistent, obedient fellowship. Here we see just how deep the fountain of corruption really is within us, brothers and sisters. And I'm speaking now to all the members of this local church. We look at the sublime, infinite riches of joy and fulfillment only to be found in Christ, and we want it for the afterlife. That's its proper time. That's its proper place. Do you recall that Don Carson quote from a while back about buying $3 worth of gospel? Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. And I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I'd like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Allow me to urge every young person here today, brother, sister, live a life consecrated, set apart to God. Start early. Quit making mud pies in the slums. Young man, young man, the culture sets the bar so low for you, brother. Sex, money, entertainment, a rewarding career, and great abs. That's, that's basically it. If you have all that, you've arrived. And, and women too. Sex, money, entertainment, Children and a rewarding career, both, you can have it all, and great abs. If you have all those things in vast measure, people will envy your existence and wish that they were you. But what does the teacher say? Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, vain, empty, futile. If you look at your bulletin, the message of Ecclesiastes Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life that will enjoy God's good gifts and to escape the final judgment. That's the whole message of the book. And as you see just above, fear, when it says fear of God, fear includes both overwhelming awe that prompts humans to tremble before God in dread and reverence that turns us toward God in joyful obedience. 
So chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. See, the teacher portrays the goodness of life as light. It's, it's being joyfully alive. Life is to be savored with enthusiasm. It's sweet like honey. Verse 8. However, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Christian, if, if you have a family that loves you, if you have a good mind, if you have physical health, a six-pack even, food and warm homes, a clothes, great music to listen to, books to read, movies to watch, friends to hang out with, a rewarding career. If you're enjoying all the delights of sex within the covenant of marriage, those are all good gifts given to you by God. Enjoy those things. They're meant to be enjoyed. In their proper context and in proper proportion, they're meant to bring you enjoyment. They're a gift from God. Enjoy, enjoyment is to be lifelong the characteristic of many years. Just remember to hang on to all of it with a very loose hand. Keep a biblical balance. Keep it in proportion. Don't whittle those good gifts down to the bone and then crack it open and suck out the marrow trying to find satisfaction and contentment that's found only in Jesus Christ. People at the law firm working 15 hours a day to make partner don't understand this. People who join swinger clubs or abuse all sorts of drugs or go to the gym for five hours a day, six days a week, don't understand this. They're throwing granules of sand into the Grand Canyon. God has deliberately created the things of this world with an inherent incapacity to satisfy that we might be most satisfied in him. So don't love the gift more than the one who gave you the gift. Remember, The deck is stacked. The dice are loaded. Focus on Christ. If you have God, then you can afford to have a healthy detachment from the things of this world while simultaneously being very thankful and enjoying greatly all that he's provided for you. Both those things. 8b. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many Everything to come is meaningless. And this is a concept that's difficult for healthy young people to appreciate, to understand. I'm talking about the coming days of disease and death. They're inevitable. If you live long enough, you will suffer. One day, brother, sister, it's going to be you in the hospital. You will be in the hospital three times a week for dialysis. You will be having the brain operation. You will be wetting your bed in the night. You will have Alzheimer's. And so you cannot remember the names of your spouse or your children. Your body, your body will be wasting away from disease. You will be in that coffin. It will be you who is buried in the earth or incinerated in the crematorium. You. Those days are, are coming just as, as impossible as it seems right now. Because I'm just, I'm so healthy. How then should you be living, knowing this is the future, inevitably, how then should you be living in light of God's word? This is a, a relatively young church. These teachings today are well suited to New City. Look at verse 9. 
You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your hearts give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, when we read the first part of verse 9, it, it sounds like carte blanche, right? Anything goes. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. <laughs> That's the rock star creed, right? Um, is that what the teacher is really advocating? No, he's saying get all the joy and cheer that you can out of innocent happiness. Yes, enjoy whatever you see and desire, but mark it well. In the midst of your enjoyment, remember that God will review on the last day the quality of your pleasures and the manner in which you enjoyed yourself. In other words, you're not autonomous. You don't have the right as a divine image bearer to indulge in things that are contrary to the commands of the holy God. You are accountable for your behavior. That's just being assumed in this text. So yes, have fun. Rejoice and delight yourself in the thrill of living. But put a prudent tone into your step. Remember that what you do today, what you did last night, what you thought in your heart, will be brought to light again when you stand before the judgment throne of Christ. Verse 10. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Christian, are you able to do that? Are you able to come at life with that larger biblical perspective, which enables you to trust in the sovereign God and so not be anxious, to cast out troubles? Do you, in fact, see your youth and your vigor as being transitory? Because that's the key. Do you, on a conscious level, enjoy your health and youth while you can, while simultaneously bearing in mind your mortality and the final judgment. That's all part of Christian consistency, of mature Christian adulting. Enjoying our health while we can, our youth while we can, while simultaneously bringing to mind our mortality and the final judgment. That's what it's all about. And if it's a balance, and it's a balance we must maintain if we're to live grateful and joyful lives with the good gifts that we've received from God's hands. Which leads now to our second point. Young person, live for your creator before death overtakes you. Abandon all illusions of independence and self-sufficiency as God regains his rightful centrality in your life. And this second point is basically a restatement of the entire thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes. When the teacher writes in 12.1, remember your creator in the days of your youth, he's not simply saying, simply recall the bare facts of God's existence. Uh, no, he's saying, remember who God is and who you are, young person. Be beware of the sin of willful autonomy. Keep God enthroned at the center of your heart. Not you brimming over with self-sufficiency and illusions of independence. 
Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and and the years approach when you, you will say, I find no pleasure in them. That is, before disease, aging, and death overtake you. Christian, yearn for and seek after the privilege of being positioned rightly with your creator God early in life. The earlier, the better. Don't follow that Johnny Cash credo, right? The earlier, the better, living a life of obedience before life in this fallen world makes your existence painful and trouble-laden because those days are coming. And now the teacher describes the days of trouble, the time when a person's aging body falls apart like a decrepit old house. That season of life when the capacity for joy fades like the light of the sun and moon. He's not being morbid here. He's just being realistic. Look at verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after rain, when the keepers of the house tremble. That means when our arms shake with palsy. And the strong men stoop. Our our legs lose their strength. When the grinders cease because they are few. When our teeth fall out. When the doors to the street are closed. When we're shut in. We can't get around like we used to. And the sound of grinding fades. When we can't join in with the younger folks who are cheerfully going about their business. When people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. We wake up early. And erratically in the early hours. Verse 5, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms, when our hair turns white, and the grasshopper drags itself along. That's probably a reference to the laborious walk of the elderly. The slightest weight is burdensome. And desire no longer is stirred. Our sex drive is kaput. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him, remember God, before the silver cord, the spinal cord, is severed and the golden bowl, the skull, is broken. Before the pitcher, the heart, is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Do you recall what God told Adam in Genesis chapter 3 verse 19? By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I remember a preacher saying he knew a man in his church who, when shaving in the morning, he always, always wore an undershirt. I'll never forget this. He wore an undershirt because he didn't want to look at what time had done to his body. He didn't want to think about what was happening to him. His own body was turning traitor against him. Where once there was muscle, now there was baggy, sagging flesh. What was left of his hair was white. He had liver spots, a bent back, missing teeth. His body was old. It wouldn't be much longer and he'd be dead. And every day... For five minutes, as he looked at the old man shaving in the mirror, where there had once been a young man, 
He was forced to face his own mortality. Beloved, as we watch our bodies break down, God is preaching a sermon to us. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, how sick, how healthy, how handsome or beautiful. You would be wise to often consider daily your mortality. For a Christian to think often, often of being laid low in their grave, that's not a preoccupation that's morbid. It's wise. It's wise. It's a, mar- it's a mark of Christian maturity. We must escape this mindset that refuses to live in the light of death. Our whole life, literally, needs to be spent in preparation for the day that we die. I've, I've instructed Jill very plainly. She's not happy about this at all, but I'm insisting. When I die, I want an open coffin and a plain pine box with no makeup and a sermon on the hope of the final resurrection. Those are my instructions. There's something I think very, very, very weird about slathering pancake makeup on a corpse to make them look like they're still alive. I don't want that. I want you to see my dead body at the front of I want people to see my dead carcass. I want them to see my lifeless corpse that one day will be resurrected at the coming of my Lord. What did we read back in chapter 7, verse 2? It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. What an eloquent, powerful sermon old age should be to the young. Loved ones, we all need to be thinking about what life in a fallen world is going to look like for us in the decades to come. I'm 46. I think I'm the third oldest person, fourth oldest person in this church, right? So, Chris, you and I are the old men here, brother. (laughs) We all need to be thinking about what life in a fallen world is going to look for us like like a like for us in the decades to come. The reality is, if God gives us the years, we're going to be using a walker. We're going to be in a wheelchair. We're going to be taking all kinds of crazy pills. We might be senile, crippled, incapacitated, confused, incontinent. Sitting on a chair in the shower. Can you imagine sitting on a chair in the shower? Like having a PSW come to your home to help you keep clean. We need to think about that. God is telling us, I created the human race from dust but also in my image and in my likeness. And yet you have rebelled against me. You have sought to de-God me, to overthrow my rightful rule. You've sinned against me. And your sin must be punished. And the punishment for sin is death. But first, I'm going to break your body down piece by piece. Friends, multitudes of old people who do not fear the Lord, who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they die every single day. Hell is full of rebellious, unrepentant old people. But hell is also teeming with rebellious, unrepentant young people. People who thought they were too young to die. 
who were surprised by death, who thought their sin a little matter, a trifling matter, who thought the cross of Christ a salvation scheme they did not require. So to any unbelievers who may be here today, let me say, friend, don't, don't be a fool. God has provided a means for guilty sinners to be reconciled to himself, but he's only made one way, through the person of his son, the last Adam, the new representative of his people, Jesus Christ. As through one man, Adam, death came into the world, so through one man, the man Christ Jesus, there is life, resurrection life. Jesus became our perfect substitute on the cross, satisfying God's divine justice on our behalf. And Jesus' bloody, wrath-absorbing sacrifice has purchased all things necessary to ensure your eternal salvation. He's the one, Jesus, who will turn your corpse into a glorious resurrection body on that last day. Remember the Lord in the days of your youth. Live for your creator before death overtakes you. That's not a life wasted at all. Abandon all illusions of independence and self-sufficiency. So the next old person you see shambling down the street with a walker, think about this sermon. Repent. Repent. And give back to God his rightful place at the center of your life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Otherwise, your life will be, as verse 8 says, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Goads were like uh, ancient cattle prods. They were large pointed sticks, basically, which the, the shepherd would poke the animal with to get it moving and turning in the right direction. Uh, goads work because they cause pain. Likewise, the words of the wise can be painful. This, this sermon is painful to hear. It's painful to hear the teacher say, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. It's painful to hear him say that pursuing our legacy is sheer futility and death is inevitable. It's painful to hear him say in chapter 7, verse 20, that there is no one righteous on the earth who never sins. It's painful to hear about the deterioration of the human body before it dies. I don't like thinking about that. Nevertheless, the wise will heed the goad of truth, even though it is painful. Verse 12, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. What he's referring to are the sayings of the one shepherd, God, who through his inspired agent, the teacher, what we're reading now in the book of Ecclesiastes, God's words may be strong, they may be sharp, they may be painful, but they're true. And we can build a worldview on their foundation that will remain firm on the day of judgment. We can't say that about anybody else's words. But God's words are words people can bank their souls on. Be warned, friends. We must not take God's own words that he reveals in the Bible and then sort of supplement them with some under-the-sun perspective 
the under-the-sun under perspective of Oprah Winfrey, let's say, or Kant or Hegel or a Hollywood actor that we admire, or a music star or a brilliant university prof or the sincerely held beliefs of our precious mother. Anybody whose conscience is not taken captive by the word of God. The sayings of the wise throughout all cultures are collected. They're studied of making many books. There is no end and much study wearies the body, but no real advance is made. There is nothing new under the sun. Just, just different shades of autonomous rebellion. Just some new thing or idea by which Satan deludes multitudes into investing hope and meaning. He doesn't care what it is, just as long as it's not the revelation of the triune God in Scripture. Which leads to our concluding point. Young person, there will be judgment for how you conduct yourself in your youth. So be wise and prepare for Christ's judgment. Verses 13 and 14. At the conclusion of the Monty Python film, The Meaning of Life, Michael Palin is handed an envelope. He opens it, and he provides the viewers with the meaning of life. This is supposed to be funny, okay? <laughs> he reads it, and he goes, well, it's nothing very special. Uh, try to be nice to people, avoid eating fat, read a good book every now and then, get some walking in, and try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. And if you can't appeal uh, to any sort of culture transcending authoritative source, I mean, that's, that's basically as good as it gets, I guess, right? Do whatever you can to promote your own happiness without hurting other people. That's the meaning of life. But imagine instead, Michael Palin had read the conclusion to Ecclesiastes. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. There is a personal God whom we must fear, who has authority over us, who has revealed himself in certain commandments and who will judge our every deed. Friend, do you believe that? Pray to God for grace that you would. Young man, young woman, live gratefully and joyfully with the good gifts you have received from God. Live for your creator before death overtakes you. Abandon all illusions of independence and self-sufficiency as God regains his rightful centrality in your life. And know this, there will be judgment for how you conduct yourself in your youth. So be wise and prepare for Christ's judgment. Amen.